electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, live from Florida tonight, and it is a special edition of Last Call because we have an exclusive and wide-ranging interview with Florida Governor and GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. We met with him at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee earlier today, where we covered a truckload of topics, including inflation, debt, deficits, possible entitlement cuts, his well-known fight with Disney, and what he would tell Bob Iger today. That is all coming up over the hour. But the governor and I began our chat on a different topic, and that was China, because the governor recently said the U.S. has a, quote, abusive relationship with the country, at least from a business perspective. So we asked him what his message would be to the CEOs of major companies like Apple, Nike, and Starbucks that are all heavily dependent on either manufacturing in or doing business with Beijing. Here's the first part of our interview. If you go back to when China was put into the WTO and get, given most favored nation status, what was promised to the American people? They said it would lead to China becoming more democratic and peaceful. That has not happened. They said it would provide protections against theft of intellectual property. That obviously has not happened. They said that we would manufacture things and then export those goods to China, but we wouldn't lose massive manufacturing. Obviously, that didn't happen. So what was promised in terms of this relationship with China has not been delivered. Delivered. And so what's happened? The United States has been the number one source of Chinese wealth. And what have they done with that wealth? They have built up their military. Uh, they are the top threat to this country. Now, their military may not be at our level yet, uh, but they're going there. Uh, their leader, President Xi, is the most ideological leader uh, that China's had since Chairman Mao. Mm -hmm. His ambitions are, are very significant. They want to overtake the United States. So what I would say is when we have a situation, and you guys cover this with these business leaders, they say something maybe a little off color about China. What do they have to do like the next day? They have to come out and bend the knee. They have to apologize for saying that. Someone in the NBA says something critical about human rights and then a ton of bricks comes down on them. So they wield a lot of power over our society. But we, but Governor, what do we do about that? Do we just stop buying shoes, Nike shoes that are made in China? Stop buying iPhones that are made in China? How do we counterbalance that? Well, we're going to do, uh, we're gonna do uh, strategic decoupling. So if you look like in COVID, I mean, you guys covered almost everything that we needed to respond to COVID was made in China. So many things that are vital to our national survival, uh, we rely on China to be able to get some of those materials. You also have policies now with the Biden administration trying to force electric vehicles. All that stuff is created initially in China, so that makes us more dependent on it. So we want to identify those industries that, that are really significant, uh, and we don't want to rely on China. Onshore, friendshore, combination of both, uh, but we've put ourselves in a vulnerable situation. Well, we have, but here's, here's the issue. Your constituents here in, in North Florida, or all across Florida, or all across America, right? We've become accustomed, almost addicted to inexpensive goods, right? Cheap items, socks, top, whatever it is, made in China. We want to manufacture here, but the reality is those products may be more expensive. How do you tell the American consumer, China may be a threat, 
We need you to buy American, but it's going to cost you a little bit more. That's a hard economic message. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, I think we, our focus is going to be less maybe on like a, a typical consumer good than it would be on things that are more significant in terms of our defense, in terms of pharmaceuticals, in terms of things that you really, really would need. Uh, and I think it's going to be a combination. I think we're going to have to provide better regulatory and tax incentives for this to be viable. I mean, I understand the economics of this. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a reason why stuff has been outsourced to China because it can be done cheaper uh, and people can make more money on that. I get that. Uh, but at the same time, we just have to understand we're in a predicament here. Yeah. And if we continue going in this direction on this current course, China is likely going to overtake us in terms of economic strength. And why, why is that important? We've never had a peer competitor in our lifetime. The Axis powers during World War II or the Soviet Union who was on our level economically, and the Soviet Union wasn't even close. It was basically a Potemkin village. Ronald Reagan understood that. He basically spent them uh, into the dustbin of history. China, if they're overtaking us economically, uh, that is going to change the world. It will change the daily lives of American families uh, if the Chinese are dominating the world. So I think this decade is the decisive decade. I don't think it's only economic, but I do think it's primarily economic. And you guys have covered, yeah. you are seeing uh, less uh, interest in China marginally now because I think a lot of companies understand there's risks associated with investing in China given all the geopolitical realities we face. There are, their, their economy right now is slowing down dramatically. It's in fact some people might say the property sector is in shambles. That's that aside getting a little bit too much into the weeds in China there. But let's just say first off do you think they would take military action against Taiwan? I'm going to ask you that as a, as a formal naval officer. And if so what's our proper response economically? Because to your point, they do manufacture most of our pharmaceuticals, the critical minerals that we need for electric car batteries, personal protective equipment, to your point, Governor. So would they do it? Xi would do it if he thinks they could get away with it. And so what do we need to do? Our policy needs to be one that will deny their ability uh, to do that and deter them from wanting to do it. If he thinks that they are going to end up buying more problems than they're solving yeah. by invading, they will not do it. Right now, we don't have an adequate defense posture in the Indo-Pacific to be able to deter it. I think if you look at the Biden administration, you listen to people like Janet Yellen, uh, they're living in a different reality than I think where most people are on this. Uh, they are Why? Not What's that reality? Well, I think what's wrong with it? I, I think I think they think that uh, that China's just like, you know, that this is kind of like a healthy competition. And, and that's not how uh, I would view it. Uh, I would view them as an adversary. And I think it's that doesn't mean you don't deal with them. Of course, you've got to deal with a lot of people. But that is that is not the direction we need to go. And so if you look at our defense posture, we really still are stuck in Europe being the primary theater of our concern. And that was understandable after World War II because you had the Cold War and all that, of course. But now the Indo-Pacific really needs to be uh, our top concern because uh, the China threat is so much more significant than I think any other uh, threat that we face. And that's going to require more hard power. Yes, more naval power. Mm -hmm. We have like 280 ships right now in our Navy. Ronald Reagan in the 80s, he had it almost up to 600 ships. So we need to do more in terms of a naval buildup, all with uh, an eye to projecting power in the Indo-Pacific. I think you can deter China. I think time is running out to do it, but I think we can do it. I think I just heard defense budgets might stay the same under a DeSantis presidency, <laughs> especially on the naval side. Switch the economy if we can. You have a plan, 3% growth. Uh, you want to do that in part by cutting bureaucracy. What bureaucracy would you cut? 
Well, first of all, we're going to take all the executive orders and the regulations that Biden has done, uh, and we're going to rip them out. Uh, if you look at a lot of what's been done, they're putting a lot of weight on the economy with these administrative rules. Um, and these are things that, that are not appropriate. Uh, and you see that in every agency from the EPA, SEC, all these different agencies. So you're going to have a huge amount of freedom uh, from these rules and regulations. We're going to rip them out. Uh, and we're going to let the economy uh, function again. We are going to our goal is going to be to reduce the footprint of all agencies in D.C. by 50 percent. And some of How that much? by 50 percent. Five zero. Yeah. And some of that will be uh, reduction through attrition as people retire. Some of that will be uh, transferring to other parts of the country, getting them out of D.C. Uh, some of it will involve uh, layoffs and, and, and using Article two power to do it. But the, the agencies in our government have grown 50 percent. Since 2019, if you look at how their funding levels, I don't think there's any American that thinks they're 50 percent better off for those agencies having grown by 50 percent. But it's all, there's also a larger issue at stake here. A lot of the most significant issues that affect our economy, our daily lives, what kind of energy you can use, what kind of car you can drive. Heck, they even talk about things like gas stoves. We, by the way, in Florida, we made gas stoves tax free. We want people to be able to make that decision. But these are being done by nameless, faceless bureaucrats. They're not being done by our elected representatives, uh, and that creates a problem with constitutional government. Because if you do something, uh, and you're, if you're in Congress, you vote for something people don't like, your constituents can hold you accountable. Congress has given so much power to the bureaucracy, and it exercises this power over us. I think it's bad for the economy, for sure, but it is bad for self-government. I mean, we want power to be accountable, and too much of it is not right now. But, but again, connect the dots, sir. How does cutting headcount in D.C. by 50 percent boost GDP because you're going to have less bureaucratic interference uh, with the economy, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. When you go talk to people, you know, I'll talk to folks in Iowa, New Hampshire as I'm going around. Usually we think like, oh, the government's taxing. And look, we're going to have low taxes. It's by far the regulatory burden that they complain about the most. And what it ends up doing is big regulatory burden gives an advantage to the biggest, most entrenched companies at the expense of the smaller companies and the upstart companies. And so that's going to be a big weight that yeah. you lift off. Uh, we are not going to be micromanaging uh, from Washington. Uh, we're going to give people a breather from that. You said we're going to have low taxes. Let's talk about that because we are uh, we're headed toward one trillion dollars in interest payments on the national debt alone. Deficits are still over a trillion dollars. The CBO says they're going to go up. Um, does debt matter? And if it does, what do we do to, to bring down national debt? Because that would involve a lot of cutting, not just, to your point, the bureaucracy in D.C. That's not going to do anything. How do we really get to the debt if indeed we have to? Well, I've been saying that you know, our country is in a state of decline now, uh, cultural, military, but also economic. And I think that this debt picture is a great example of that. I mean, we've added like 12 trillion to the debt in like the last five or six years. Both parties, by the way. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, this idea that that it's all the Democrats. No. I tell Republican audiences both parties have done it. Both parties have been involved. And actually, Republicans are very tough when they're out of power. Power, but when they get in power, you know, they basically go on a spending binge, too. And I think you've seen it over the last five or six years. So 100 percent, it's a bipartisan thing. 
But how do we end up 32 trillion in debt? Uh, and a lot of it was how they handled the response to COVID. I mean, they did trillions and trillions of dollars, very little to show for it. The, the response was poor. But what the, what the Congress has done, they've basically locked in that level of spending. Once government increases spending, that kind of becomes the new baseline. You can't govern like that. In Florida, we basically do zero-based budgeting. So you could head an agency yeah. in Florida. Maybe you got a uh, billion dollars last year. You're not entitled to get more than a billion next year. You have to justify what you're going to do. We don't do that um, in Washington. So debt does matter. The interest is gobbling up more and more percent. I mean, I think the percentage of GDP that's dedicated to uh -huh. interest payments has doubled in the last five or six years. That is not healthy. Clearly, we got to get inflation under control. Part of that is Congress should stop spending so much money. Part of that is grow the economy. Part of it is increase productivity. But part of it is energy independence and unleashing our domestic energy production. Biden's made a decision to go with the Green New Deal and pursue that agenda. That is not an agenda that is going to help us reduce uh, inflation. It's not an agenda that's going to be good for the average American family. Yeah. And it's not an agenda that's going to be good for maximum economic growth. We have an opportunity to have a huge competitive advantage with our, with our energy resources here in the United States. But when you say don't do that, focus more on EV, that's emboldening Russia, Iran, Venezuela, and China. Uh, so geopolitically, it makes a lot of sense for us to be energy independent. Okay, going back to debts, okay, the, we hear about we need to raise taxes on the wealthy. We need to raise taxes on corporations. If elected, would you keep personal and or corporate tax rates where they are? What's your tax plan? Yeah, I think we need to. The, the current rates that are due to expire, we want to keep those rates you in keep place. keep those yeah, cuts going. We, we don't want to see, we don't want to see um, increases in taxes. Uh, we definitely want to see things like, like permanent bonus depreciation, making sure you have full expensing. I think that that's a really smart thing to do. That's kind of been eroded over the last few years, but we, got, we should do that. Um, but here's the thing. We are taking in as high a percentage of our GDP in taxes as we have in any time since World War II, even when we had higher tax rates in like the 40s or 50s. And so I don't know how much more meat there is on the bone in terms of taxes. And so I think we're better off. Where's the money going? It's going to, it's going to Social Security, Medicare, Well, Medicaid. some of it. I mean, I think if you look at the last five or six years, most of that was the Congress deficit spending. Uh, I don't think that that was because of Social Security. I mean, they did two, $2.2 March of 2020, another $2.2 December of 2020 under Republicans. Uh, and then Biden did almost $2 trillion in March with the American Rescue Plan. He did his infrastructure. So those were de decisions to make to spend all that money uh, and so sometimes when people say, oh, it's entitlements that are causing that, well, well, we didn't go from 21 to 32 trillion because of entitlements. Largely, it was because of discretionary decisions that the Congress has made. Would you consider cuts to entitlement, though? Would you consider raising retirement ages? Would you consider mean, things like means testing for Social Security? So everybody who is getting uh, these the Social Security, Medicare, those promises have been made. Those promises are going to be kept. I don't think this idea that people say, you know, the Republicans want to take away people's, that's not going to happen. Uh, it's important. I mean, we have- You're It's not going to happen. Guaranteeing it for, on for, camera, for, for, CNBC. Yeah, yeah. For, for, the, for the elderly or people near retirement, um, you know, we're going to we're going to meet those obligations. Uh, you know, I, I mean, my grandmother lived till 91. That was all that was her sole source of income with Social Security. And if you look now, there's millions and millions of seniors out there where that's their sole source in an inflationary era. 
that's really problematic because they do get a cola, but the cola is not enough cost to keep of living up. Adjustment. Yeah, the, the cost of living adjustment. So, so, so that's just that. And then, of course, in Florida, you know, we, we have um, a lot of seniors. Now, here's the thing with the, the retirement age. Um, you know, when 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 it was created in the 30s, life expectancy was a lot different. But what's happened in the last five or six years is life expectancy in the United States has gone down, uh, and it's gone. A lot of down. that was a COVID re- reaction. Some of it, but I think some of it was. Um, uh, I think it. Ha- I think it started. Before before COVID, and I think it's con- con- continued even here afterwards. I think it's more than more than just COVID. I mean, I think that there's uh, deaths of despair. I think you have uh, drugs. Well, we've seen Al- over 100,000 drug overdoses. Yes. So obviously. I think it's hard to say, you know, raise the age when the age that when the average life expectancy is going down. Uh, we used to think that life expectancy was just going to keep going up, and that's just not been the case. Would entitlement cuts be on the table? I think what it would be is promise made, promise kept. Uh, I think looking forward in terms of future generations, people of, of our generation, you got to sit down, you got to work in a bipartisan way with, with the other party. You cannot do this with one party. I mean, when Reagan sat with Tip O'Neill, they were able to preserve Social Security for, for many more decades. And so yeah. you got to be able to sit down, work across the aisle, and develop a solution for the long term. And we have two more parts of our exclusive conversation coming up with the governor of Florida. But of course, we have not forgotten about the markets and your money. And here's what happened to kick off the week. And maybe the first time in stocks lore, both the Dow and the S&P each gained the same amount, about 26 points. Obviously a bigger gain for the S&P 500, but they both went up 26. The big winner was the NASDAQ up about 1%. The reason or one reason the big winner of the day was NVIDIA, shooting up more than 7% on an analyst upgrade, the biggest decliner, a company called Fortrea. It's a recent spinoff from LabCorp. Investors did not like their earnings. Fortrea down 12%. All right, up next on this special Monday Last Call, much more of our exclusive interview with Governor Ron DeSantis, including if he'd be willing to give Disney CEO Bob Iger a call and hash it out, what to do about America's soaring debt load, and if he would have Jay Powell remain as Fed chair. You watch the last call. We're back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. All right, welcome back to Last Call Live from Florida. Now, earlier today in Tallahassee, we sat down with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And in part two of our exclusive interview, we hit on Florida's economic model, energy policy, and whether he's too focused maybe on things like ESG. But we begin this part of our interview 
with the governor's long-running feud with Disney, and I asked him whether he has spoken with CEO Bob Iger. I have not. Um, would you? But yeah, yeah, no, I would. I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, um, yeah, this is just an issue about you know, the kids. We're going to stand up for our kids. And, uh, you know, I think they made a big mistake by getting involved in this. But as a parent of a six, five and a three year old, uh, I understand and parents understand kids should be able to go to school, watch cartoons, just be kids without having an agenda shoved down their throat. And when you start talking about telling a first grader that they can switch their gender and all that. But what did Disney have to do with it? Well, I mean, Dis- I, I know they. What was the, what was? I at this point, I'm having trouble remembering what the original beef was. So, so we had a bill that basically said in elementary school, we're not going to have any of the sexualized curriculum. We're going to focus on math, reading, all that. Basically, doing school the way it had been done all of American history until like what two weeks ago. So they came in and opposed the bill, tried to tank it, which is their right to do. That's fine. Uh, I signed the bill, and then they put out a statement saying that they were going to devote their their company's resources to seeing the parents' rights repealed or seeing it overturned in court. And it's like, okay, first of all, I don't think that's consistent with their fiduciary duty to have taken that position. They did, but then we're in a situation where it's okay. You know, they have been given this special arrangement by Florida many decades ago. So that's like subsidies. They're being subsidized. So then they're going to turn those subsidies against our state policy. But I think, but you you could understand being, you're the governor of Florida. So you're in a, you know, the, Florida's, I believe, they're the biggest employer in the state of Florida. If not, they no, must be. No, no, they're not. But they're they're they're. They got to be. Employed. They got to be close. Yeah, okay, yeah. they bring in a lot of money to your state. And oh, by the way, they bring in a lot of money to your state. Well, but oh, by the way. No one has made Disney more money recently than me because during COVID, they were open in Florida. They were locked shut in California. We said, we want you guys to operate because we understood how important it was that their cast members in Central Florida had the ability to, to, to make ends meet. And in fact, when Disney closed their parks, I didn't tell them to close. They did it voluntarily. Uh, we got all their employees' information. We ran them through unemployment. We helped them stay afloat until they could Why open not? again. You got a beautiful desk back over there want to pick up the phone today give bob Iger a call and if so what would you say well here's the here's the deal because he wasn't even ceo when this happened no i know but, but he, that other guy got booted bob no, no, Chapek. no 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 i know but here here's the deal um i would just say two things apart from florida disney's had a lot of problems and i think that the skirmish they got in with with the with these young kids i think that's a symptom of, of why they're not doing as well, because I think parents have lost some confidence that this is a company that's really speaking to, to what they want the way it had been traditionally. So I would just say, just as a parent, look, my wife and I, we got married at Walt Disney World, okay? And so it's not like we're, we're opposed. I mean, we've appreciated working with them over the years. But I would just say, go back to what, what you did well. I think it's yeah. going to be the, the right business decision and all that. But where we are today, um, you know, we've, we've basically moved on. They're suing the state of Florida. They're going to lose that lawsuit. So what I would say is drop the lawsuit. You know, you have the state that even CNBC ranks as number one of all 50 states for economy. We lead the nation in new business formations. Unemployment is in incredibly low, great fiscal posture. People are bringing capital into Florida. This is a great place to do business. Your competitors all do very well here. Universal SeaWorld, they have not had the same special privileges as you have. So all we want to do is treat everybody the same and let's move forward. I'm totally fine with that, but I'm not fine with giving extraordinary privileges, you know, to one special company at the exclusion of everybody else. You know, the economy, um, you guys reopen quicker and some people criticize you for that, whatever it may be. You have more. You, you, I think you surpassed pre-COVID jobs in October of 2021. There's some states yeah. 
that still have not gotten back there. But how would you Florida, Illinois or something or Ohio, for example, they've got different climates, different economies, different taxes, different regulations. Is this model, given the weather and travel and tourism, is it replicable to a to an Illinois, to an Ohio? to Nebraska. Well, just let's look at COVID. I mean, so we made the decision to buck Fauci, to buck the administration, the media attacked us. Uh, And then now where we are, obviously, economically, we've done much better than all those states. But in terms of our excess mortality, we have the lowest excess mortality in all the Sun Belt, including less than California and New York. And so I think we handled it in a way where we understood, yes, this one virus is important. But that can't be the exclusion of everything else. It's not even to the exclusion of other health concerns, because what you had is you had people not going in for cancer screenings, all this. So we wanted to make sure people you know, lived yeah. a whole life and could make their own decisions. So I think some of these areas that did otherwise still have not recovered. I mean, I've been to San Francisco recently. You see a lot of the businesses boarded up. And that's what people care about. You know, and, and again, I think people would might. And by the way, your comment, a lot of people, there's a lot of misconceptions about Florida. I think your COVID numbers are pretty much kind of smack dab in the middle. People can go verify that We're for we're third on an age-adjusted basis. We're 31st, so there's 30 states that have yeah. higher per capita mortality yeah. than we yeah, have. Yeah. And it's you know it's obviously a controversial s- subject, but the data is out there. People right. can go do that. But I think a lot of it was a New York, I think it was a New York Times, whatever you might think of polls. It was a recent New York Times Siena poll said that over half of GOP primary voters, so GOP primary voters, are more concerned about like law and order than they are about anti-ESG. Well, I think, honestly, I think all this is kind of one and the same because, like, you're right, the law and order. I mean, we can't be successful as a country if every urban core in our country is a disaster zone. In some of these well, places. Well, it's not. I mean, not every I mean, I, look, if you look at, okay, so let's look at San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. Three cities I've been to in the last three months. New York City. They've all declined significantly. over, And the number one reason is because of lack of law and order. So that's something we take very seriously in Florida. Our crime rate's at a 50-year low. I think the federal government has a role in in helping maintain law and order in the cities. For example, with these prosecutors, you will have prosecutors elected that are, quote, progressives, and they say, we're not going to pursue charges in all these different crimes. That is not their decision to make. Well, it is because I'm sure we are a federalist republic. The states can make those decisions, economic decisions. They can, but but they're not following the state's policy. So the state has said shoplifting's a crime, mugging someone's a crime. If a prosecutor comes in and says, we're just not going to pursue charges, blanket or even in most instances, they are nullifying the law that the people have enacted. And so what that has done, that has led basically the inmates running the asylum reserves. And you know, we, you know, we have a lot of migration into Florida. Yes. These people tell me why they do. You can talk to realtors. Yes, freedom from COVID. Yes, low taxes. A lot of that. But they will say public safety is one of the top reasons why they're moving from San Francisco or Chicago or New York City to Florida because they haven't taken it seriously. You've got to get that right. But here's the thing. It's connected to ESG and some of this other stuff because it's ideology. They're putting ideology ahead of tried and true principles. New York figured out how to keep the streets safe. If you look under Giuliani and Bloomberg, it was the safest big city in the world probably because they took uh, policing seriously, they held criminals accountable. A lot of these liberal jurisdictions have turned their back on it, but I would say it's the same thing that motivates ESG. It's ideology that's motivating ESG. ESG is taking businesses, taking shareholder assets, 
and trying to repurpose those for ideological things. I feel like it's a bit of an esoteric topic for the majority of the voting base in the United States. Well, but, but I think they do understand who governs in society. And I think we govern yeah. through the medium of elections under a constitution. If you have a situation where asset managers can shoehorn companies into taking positions that change society or potentially change policy, you know, that's an issue about, okay, now we're being governed by people yeah. in some of these big asset firms or in some of these big companies. They do get that. They don't want that. The ENESG is environmental. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act, which is celebrating a one-year anniversary? Because I'll say this, I know you might be critical of all or part of it, the biggest renewable energy generator in America is NextEra Energy, the old Florida power and light. I'm sure they love it. Yeah, but what they've done, they've been doing uh, solar for a long time now, especially when natural gas started spiking, the solar became economical for them. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that wasn't state wasn't subsidizing it. It was just that's what they were doing. Well, it is the sunshine state. Exactly. But I think this, it's going to be way more expensive. I mean, I think Goldman Sachs and some of these other people have done the analysis. It's going to be not just a few hundred billion. It's going to be like $1.3 trillion. That's the Goldman number about the ultimate cost of the tax credits because they're still yes, writing. exactly. And so that is not something that is in the best interest of this country, especially with, with what we're doing with that. I also think they are intent on forcing a transition uh, that is just not ready to be forced. We are going to need fossil fuels for the rest of our lifetimes. And in Florida, we've had a big reduction in emissions over the last 10 years, but a lot of that is going from coal to natural gas. There have been some solar, but to try to take some of these options off the table, I think it's a huge mistake. I think Germany has suffered from doing it. Some of the states in our own country, like California, you know, they have blackouts and stuff. They literally, two days after they announced the electric vehicle mandate, all new cars had to be electric by, I think, in five years. 20, two, by 2035. Yeah, two, two days later, they put out a, a, an advisory, don't plug in your your electric car right yeah, now you, because you they didn't the grid, have enough. Our grid, our power grid in large parts of the country is a disaster. It is. It's no, for sure. 75, and by the way, it causes fires. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's actually become a deadly problem. And that's the thing. If you're going to put these mandates in place without having the power grid be able to accept what, what needs to accept, we're going to run into a lot of problems. And so that will go, we'll go in a much different direction. We are going to have reliable energy in this country. It is very important. Honestly, it can be the lifeblood of an economic renaissance uh, here. And yeah. I'm all for technology and people innovating. And I do think you're going to see a lot of innovation in energy. But to put our thumb on the scale and force going in one direction, I'll tell you, a lot of these working class, middle class people that have, uh, that have soured on Biden, that's one of the reasons, because they see what's happening. They're having to pay more because he's pursuing that agenda. Well, I know a lot of people in this state, and by the way, California, for some reason, you and California, are, I don't know, I have no idea why this is the case. You and California are always uh, wrapped together. A lot of homeowners can't get insurance policies in California or in Florida. I think insurance rates are up something like 42 percent. Obviously, climate change, got bad storms, Hurricane Ian, a 2017 state Supreme Court decision. How do you uh, assure potential voters uh, and by the way, assure your current constituents in Florida that the, the, the insurance market will be fixed because there's something wrong with the homeowner's insurance market. Well, I mean, a couple of things. Obviously, we've had really significant inflation. That's affected insurance nationwide, too. We had one of the costliest storms in modern history with Hurricane Ian last September. Uh, that was not good for the market. And then three, Florida had long had the most litigation costs associated with yeah. our insurance market. 8% of the claims in Florida, almost 80% of the litigation costs. Guess who's paying those costs? 
premium, uh, those are higher premiums for policyholders. So we did a major reform in December uh, where we've basically now mimicked other, other states who have a much more rational approach to this, not incentivizing litigation. What happened is uh, the reinsurance market, they thought it was going to be a 50% increase. It was only up 25%, and we think that reform had a lot. We've also done this My Safe Florida Home program. Floridians can get grants. They can upgrade protection on their home, and then they're entitled to lower rights. Because oh, it's oh, a yeah. major problem. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, housing is such a huge part of your economy. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you don't fix it here, or California, yeah. or wherever it might be, well, we've done for many housing years. matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've done 21, 22, 23. We've done different measures. The big enchilada yeah. was more recently. We do have the grant program. But you are seeing more companies now want yep. to get into our market. Okay. And that's the thing. At the end of the day, consumers benefit when businesses compete for their, for their, for their business. If you only have one option, well, then they're going to jack up the rate. So we're trying to, to, to get more capital okay. into the market. All right, still to come. Plenty more to come from our exclusive interview with Governor Ron DeSantis, including if he would press Congress to try to ban stock trading by Congress. Plus, reaction to the interview from this guest panel. There we go. We got Heidi and Hal both waiting. We are live from Florida, and we are back on Last Call right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, and welcome back to Last Call. Hope you had a great Monday and start to your week. We'll get more of our exclusive interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a bit later on in the show, including his thoughts on Fed Chair Jay Powell, immigration, maybe banning TikTok, and also maybe trying to ban stock trading by Congress. But before we do that, there's already kind of much to discuss from his comments on China, the economy, taxes, and Disney stuff you've already heard. So let's bring in a panel to talk more about it. That includes former North Dakota Democratic Senator and CBC contributor Heidi Heitkamp and mega donor and Point Bridge Capital founder and CEO Hal Lambert. He is throwing his support behind DeSantis. He was a Trump supporter both in 2020 and in 2016. Hal and Heidi, both welcome. Uh, Senator, I'll, I'll begin with you. Um, does, does Ron DeSantis have a path to the GOP? Okay, we're having an audio issue apparently. Uh, Hal, I will go back to you. Do you believe, and you obviously do for supporting him, that Ron DeSantis does indeed have a path still to the GOP nomination despite most national polls showing Trump far ahead? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this isn't a national election. These are state-by-state primaries. Uh, He is building the ground game in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, the early states. Uh, The reception there has been amazing. If you look at some of the support that he's getting as a comparison, for instance, Senator Ted Cruz won Iowa in 2016. He had 12 state legislative endorsements. Governor DeSantis already has 40. So he's doing extremely well there. He's wrapping up the the important endorsements in the state, and he's moving forward into New Hampshire and South Carolina. So absolutely, I'm actually very pleased with exactly where he is right now. 
You know, it is interesting you when mentioned you- this, Hal. Because, uh, Senator, welcome back. We'll get you in just one minute. Uh, Hal, because we talked a little bit off camera about the mechanics of an election. Certainly, I am I'm absolutely no expert. Uh, the governor had said that he's going to try to make it to all 99 counties in Iowa. I was, by the way, surprised to learn that Iowa had 99 counties. But I think your point is well taken, which is, and it doesn't have to be just with Governor DeSantis, could be with other candidates, that the mechanics of this election may work a lot differently than just the simply huge gap in the national polls may indicate. I think that's what you're saying. No, oh, for certain. I mean, you know, national polls, most people are not paying attention, guys. I mean, I, I get it that the polls are there, but when you call up someone in California or Texas or, or some other state nationally and go, who are you supporting? Well, you know, they know Trump's name. They, they're more likely to say Trump because they, they're not even paying attention to anybody else. So that's going to change as we move closer and closer to these primaries. And, you know, you mentioned the, 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 the 99 counties. That's called a full Grassley uh, after Senator Chuck Grassley. And uh, <laughs> Governor DeSantis is already a third of the way there. So he's easily going to make that. And again, he is doing extremely well in these early states with the organization, the ground game. He's got the money. He's got the focus. He was there for the past week on the ground, uh, you know, former President Trump flew in for one hour on the ground and flew out. Yeah. That's not going to work. You're going to have to spend the time and earn this nomination. Yeah, and Senator Heidkamp, uh, first off, your reaction to anything that you may have heard so far as part of the interview. And also, and listen, and you know this as well, uh, the former guy, Trump, tends to get a lot of press because he, let's be honest, he, he sells papers. He, he will get ratings. How do other candidates like Ron DeSantis breakthrough when there is, let's be honest, there's a definite focus on Trump all the time. Well, I I think Ron DeSantis is doing the right thing right now, which is basically talking about the economy. He sounds rational. He's hitting the points on China. He's hitting the points on debt and deficit. It's clear he had to pivot away from being the culture warrior. The question is whether it's too little too late. And I can understand the optimism of somebody who is a staunch supporter and a big financial supporter. But right now, even when you look at the polling in Iowa, it's really hard to see Ron DeSantis pulling out in Iowa. And one thing that I thought was funny is he won't pick up the phone and call Bob Iger but he thinks he can negotiate social security reform. And so I think after this interview, which is very well done, Brian, I think if he picks up the phone and calls Bob Iger, that's gonna show that he's a a president who will actually listen to other people, be a compromiser, be somebody that would intrigue an Iowa, you know, undecided Republican. And so um, I applaud him. I think he's had a lot of campaign missteps. I think that uh, he has uh, he has now pivoted to the economy and he seems comfortable there. Well, thank you for the compliment, by the way, Senator. And I know you were somebody that would reach across the aisle as well, because, heck, I mean, you come from an oil producing state, which is a traditionally, you know, red. I hate framing it in terms of colors, but, you know, Republican certainly leaning state. So another one following up to you, obviously, you know, North Dakota, you guys had sort of your own economic miracle with oil and gas and the state made a lot of money and still has, I believe, a significant surplus. Florida, he's told me off camera, was going for a 15 to 20 billion dollar surplus. But to my point earlier, Senator, do you think that that that's the Florida model, if you will, which, by the way, a lot of inflation in Florida right now, because a lot of people are moving there, housing costs, whatever, is the Florida model replicable to a state not like North Dakota, but like an Illinois? 
Well, I think when you look at the Florida model, I think he overstates uh, some of his accomplishments. He's growing the Florida budget by 28%. That doesn't exactly sound like a guy who's serious about cutting budgets. When he got into trouble on, on, on insurance, homeowner insurance, they amped up and put more money into a government-run program. When you look at how, you know, Florida, he's, he's criticizing the excess of the COVID spending. Florida didn't turn one of those dollars back. And so, you know, let's be a little honest, Governor, about how you got your surplus, what you're doing with federal dollars there. You know, obviously hurricanes yeah. are costing all of us a lot of money along with his homeowners. I, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion after this interview, Brian, about uh, how truthful some of uh, his dialogue was. Wouldn't have it any other way. Senator Heidi Heidkamp, uh, Hal Lambert, both, thank you so much. Do appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. No, it's late. All right, still ahead, part three of our interview with Governor Ron DeSantis, including what he would do with Fed Chair Jay Powell. But it's not all we got left of the show. Up next, there's a lot more going on today, including some maybe eyebrow-raising new disclosures involving Google and Disney from Wall Street heavyweight hedge funds, plus famed big short investor Michael Burry maybe making a massive bet against the American stock market. All right, welcome back. Time now for tomorrow's news tonight. First up, more bad news for alleged crypto fraudster Sam Bankman-Fried. Just days after being sentenced to jail while awaiting trial, the FTX founder is now facing another indictment. This one over political donations. Federal prosecutors allege that Bankman-Fried used stolen money to make over $100 million in political donations, most just ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Some Congress people, by the way, have given those back. Some have not. Anyway, SBF faces seven counts of conspiracy and fraud under the new indictment. Another story to get to and get your pens ready because it is the time of the quarter when we learn what some of the biggest and most powerful hedge funds are buying and selling, or at least did, earlier in the quarter. And we learned a few interesting things today. First up, Pershing Square Capital Management founder Bill Ackman buying about 3.5 million shares of Google parent Alphabet. The move increases the firm's holdings in Alphabet by about 43%. But check this out. Another massive hedge fund, Dan Loeb's third point, selling nearly 3.5 million shares of Alphabet. Hey, maybe Ackman bought Loeb's stock, by the way. It is not just Ackman and Loeb making some headlines. Billionaire Nelson Peltz's fund buying more than half a million shares of the aforementioned Walt Disney Company. Peltz, remember, had previously been involved in a proxy fight with Disney and was fighting for a seat on the company's board. Peltz has been a vocal critic of Disney CEO Bob Iger, but filing show that did not stop him from buying more Disney stock. In the meantime, listen to this. A potential big red flag from one of Wall Street's biggest short sellers and investors. Hedge fund manager Michael Burry, yep, the guy from the big short, played by Christian Bale, who predicted the 2007 subprime crisis, is disclosing a potentially huge bearish bet. How bearish? Try $1.6 billion. At the end of June, Burry's hedge fund owned a large number of put options on the S&P 500. Put options go up in value if what the put option bet is on goes down. 
The firm also held puts on shares of the Invesco Triple Q ETF, which tracks the NASDAQ 100, which is up about 40% so far this year. In other words, this could be a giant billion-dollar bet against the American stock market. But there could also be a caveat. Joining us now is Chief Global Strategist at BTIG, Dan Greenhouse. It's okay to smile, Dan. It's Monday night. Everything's good. Uh, here's, here, here, there yeah, we go. You. There we go. Here's the thing. Put options can be a bearish bet or they can be a hedge against a much larger bullish bet. I know we're going to have to speculate here, but based on the size, what do you think this might be? Yeah, I, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, we don't know his portfolio. We don't know his views. So it's very difficult to say for sure. They could be, as you mentioned, a hedge against the bullish bet. They could be contingent on something else happening. That's a, that's a pretty big bet in, on the street right now. You bet on X if Y happens. And, and so without greater detail, we just simply don't know. But, but obviously, given the notional size, now that's not actually the money he bet, but the notional size, it's, it's pretty substantial. Yeah, and, and and I would, and again, we're we're just wildly. This is a hot, it's like a sports show. It's a hot take. We're wildly speculating. It's sure. okay, uh, not making pronouncements. Um, but based on the size of this bet, if if the one point six notional value million notional value of this put options trade, um, I I would have to assume then that the that the size of the long trade would be much bigger. In other words, I would lean toward saying this is indeed a bet against the stock market, and not a hedge on a bullish bet. But again, my take. Sure. And again, I don't know how much how much money, um, <clears throat> Burry. I apologize. I was cheering on your interview, and I seem to have lost my voice all of a sudden. But, just um, that good. Just stunning. But um, So I don't know how much money he manages, so we can't say. But listen, the, the stock market is expensive. We know that. A lot of that is the growth of tech uh, and comm services. We know that. Um, so, 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 and of course, this is a seasonally weak period for the market. The last three Septembers have been down. Six of the last nine have been down. So, maybe putting it all together, he um, he has a view that perhaps there's a, a short-term move to be made here. And given the size of the trade, it could be could be a substantial payoff if the market falls five or ten percent. I mean, listen, whatever. I'm sorry to interrupt. I would also add, we don't know the strike on the options, so we don't know whether these are very out of the money. We don't know whether they're very in the money. There's a lot of the details that we don't know. Yeah, that, those are excellent points. I think, but it's, I think just the headline of the trade itself is the reason that we invited you on to talk about it, Dan. And we appreciate it, my man. Thank you very sure. much. Listen, Thank you, sir. To Dan's point, this could be a way out of the money trade with a small probability, but a giant payoff. He has made that bet before and oh, it paid off. All right, on deck, the final sort of rapid-fire portion of our exclusive interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That is next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Aren't those, those deep fakes are, are just creepy and it's only going to get worse. Anyway, time to wrap it up. Kind of the rapid-fire portion of our exclusive interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, we covered a whole lot already uh, in the interview, but this one we talk about TikTok and congressional stock trading. But first, his thoughts on the Fed. Would you uh, renominate Jay Powell as the Federal Reserve Chair if elected? No. Why not? 
Well, I don't think he's done a good job. I mean, I think from COVID on, um, they they put too much money into the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that drove the inflation. But then they said it was going to be transitory, that we had to unlearn Milton Friedman. No, when you start doing something like that, it's about 18 to 20 months, you are going to yep. see inflation. And so they were behind the ball on that. And then they've hiked so much now, it's caused a lot of problems in the yep. economy and could end up driving us into a recession. You get a lot of questions about immigration, particularly the border. I know you covered that extensively in, a, in an interview recently with my colleague, Dasha Burns at MSNBC. So I'll ask about H-1B visas. Would you support allowing more H-1B visa immigration to the United States? I'm sure there's a lot of counties, say, in like rural Florida, who would love to have a qualified doctor no matter where that doctor is from. Yeah, but the problem is the way that has been uh, implemented they will bring in people in technology from from other countries who work for lower rates than what Americans work for. And so I don't support undercutting American wages. And the H-1B program has been used to do that. I used to kind yeah. of, when people would say, hey, why not just have people that are, that are credentialed coming? I was like, yeah, yeah, why not? But, but the way it's operated, uh, I think, has lowered wages for Americans. And that's what you don't want. If it's an addition for the economy that benefits the American people, that's one thing. But if it's displacing an American worker, that's not good. Would you ban TikTok? I think so. I mean, I I, I don't like the bill that was done, this Disclose Act. I think that was way too heavy handed. I think it would invade people's privacy. Uh, But the amount of stuff going in with TikTok, uh, I do think represents a threat to our country, given China's um, uh, ownership. And last question, one that I hear about all the time from my loyal and lovely CNBC audience. Would you ban congressional stock trading? I don't mean owning long stock stocks long term. Would you ban Congress from trading stocks. I would. I mean, when I, I was a congressman for three terms, I sold all my stock before I went in because I used to do day trading. Not that I had a lot of money, but I would do it. I just stopped doing because the thing is, is if I traded something, someone will then say maybe some vote was there. And I didn't even want the appearance of impropriety. And you look at how some of these people making windfalls. Look, maybe it's all on the level, but I think the average citizen looks at that and they say, you know what, these guys play by their own set of rules. So I'd get rid of that. I would eliminate congressional pensions for members of Congress. They should, they have a 401k. They don't need both. Uh, And then I would impose term limits on members of Congress. Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you so much for having CNBC in your home. Uh, Best to you and your family. And thank you again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, and one last part on that point about congressional stock trading. Remember, the president, if he is elected or whoever's in the office, cannot just single-handedly eliminate stock trading bans from Congress. Congress would actually have to pass a law that would ban itself from stock trading. In other words, they would have to make the law that would hurt themselves. It could happen. You could push forward as president, but you can't make it happen. Either way, a huge thanks to the governor and his entire team, and by the way, his family as well. His kids are starting school in a couple of days. That is actually their functioning house as the governor's mansion as well. Uh, So thanks to them for letting us in. And just a reminder here on CNBC, and in particular, last call, whatever it may be, uh, that any viable candidate for the election certainly is welcome. And that includes current president and leading Democratic candidate, uh, Joe Biden. If President Biden would like to come on this program, we will go anytime, anywhere, to any part of the country to talk about all those issues that are certainly prescient and important for the CNBC audience, like debt, inflation, everything else. Everybody is welcome here on CNBC. And last call, thanks to our team and everybody that came down here. Carl, we'll see you back in New Jersey. See you in New Jersey tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next, everybody. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 